against nations. Why? To protect their own interests. Political parties fight against political parties to get what they think is right, get what they want. Employees gossip and complain towards others' employees who are getting what they want to get, right? They want a bigger raise or they want the promotion or they want the better job. And so they're fighting quarrel among them. Church members complain towards one another when they think they've been neglected, think they've been sinned against. Husband and wife argue with one another when their needs aren't being met. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus addressed this issue of conflict and turmoil against us. And he said, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who take two warring parties and bring them together in peace. Now, making peace is, is a challenge. I'm not sure you know that, but it's very hard. As a pastor of a church, I can tell you from firsthand experience how difficult it is. When two parties are seated before you with a complaint against each other, and you are put as the role of trying to mediate and trying to make peace between them, it is very difficult. It, it requires a great amount of love. It requires a great amount of wisdom, a great amount of commitment, and perhaps maybe most of all, it takes a great amount of prayer. In my experience, I've seen Solomon's wisdom ring true, absolutely. Proverbs 18, verse 19 says, A brother offended is harder to be won than a strong city, and contentions are like the bars of a citadel. Solomon says this, When you offend somebody, whether it's what you say towards them that they didn't like, or whether it be some sin that you commit against them, or neglecting them in some way, somehow offending them, it is very difficult to win them back. In fact, he says, it's easier to go into a strong, fortified, well-armed city and conquer it and rule over all the inhabitants than it is for you to win a brother whom you have offended. You know what? I have found that when, when you offend another brother, something happens in their heart. It just does. Something happens in the heart. A hardening happens that's just very difficult to pierce through and penetrate. As Solomon said, it's like the bars of a citadel. It's like the bars on a castle, strong and fortified, resistant to all penetration coming against it. I could give firsthand illustration of these things. I could give you many illustrations of ways in which I have offended people and has caused a, a very difficult time to win them back. I think one instance I'll share, it's real generic, but I remember when I was working in the computer world, I was a fairly new employee working in a hospital, about 500 employees, and I was out, you know, helping people with their computer problems and trying to help what I can, kind of learning the, the lay of the land a little bit, meeting some new employees, and um, one one time I, uh, I happened upon this woman, we start to engage in small talk a little bit, you know, I didn't know her, she didn't know me, just kind of figuring out what, what it was, and figuring out a computer problem and kind of talking in the background a little bit. And after a bit, she then um, revealed something about her family. And so I just quoted something from the Bible and said, well, do you know how that lines up with what's happening in your family? And um, she didn't, no, she didn't know much about that. And then I went on my way. And back a few minutes later, I received a call from her again. And she'd asked me for me to return. And so I returned. When I returned, she took me away into a, kind of a room that was private, and uh, she said something to the effect with anger in her voice. I looked up that Bible verse you quoted to me, and I read it, and I don't want you ever to make or question my family again. 
confused about this tall, you know, feisty little one, you know. And I apologize, said I'm sorry for being insensitive, you know. I think it probably was pretty brash and pretty bold. I mean, it was was with truth, but I, I missed it, you know, and I could have got to know her a little bit better before I, you know, maybe got into that issue a little bit. I apologize, and I'm telling you, five years later, the relationship was never fully restored. It didn't matter how nice it was. It didn't matter how much I said I was sorry. It didn't matter how kind I was, how courteous I was, how much I helped her with computers. There was a tension for five years between us because a brother offended is harder to be won than a, a strong city. I can give you illustrations of things that's taken place in my extended family. Uh, I think particularly some people out in California I've confronted before with the truth and offended, and there's still a rift. That's before our marriage. Fifteen years later, there's still tension among us, even though I've sought to try to help to restore that in whatever way I can, because a brother offended is difficult to win. I give you illustrations of things with the church where I've sinned against others. I've confessed sin to them. I've sought forgiveness. I've spoken of my love. I've sought to demonstrate my love in physical ways, praying with people, calling them on the phone, helping them physically. And I've just seen how difficult it is to be fully restored. It's very hard, very hard to be restored. And what's interesting here in uh, Proverbs 18, verse 19, Solomon's not talking about enemies. He's talking about friends. He's talking about brothers. He's talking about those in community with each other, right? A brother offended is more difficult to win than a strong city. It's, it's, it's really a simple observation of the fact of how true Proverbs are because interpersonal conflicts and relationships are difficult to restore once they've been broken down. And I don't care how close the original friendship, once the offense is taken, the breach is difficult to restore. Derek Kidner said in his little commentary on the Proverbs, he said, The invisible walls of estrangement are so easy to erect and so hard to demolish. Being a peacemaker is difficult, but there's great blessing in being a peacemaker, right? Blessed are the peacemakers, for they should be called sons of God. Well, as Paul penned this letter to Philemon, he found himself in the role of being a peacemaker. In the providential circumstances of history, he found himself in a Roman prison cell. A man came to him, whether a fellow prisoner, whether a guard, we don't know. His name was Onesimus. And this man was in conflict with a man in Colossae whose name was Philemon. Onesimus had wronged Philemon in a major way. Onesimus was Philemon's slave. And at one point, there was some rift between them, some problems, some conflict. He ran away. He ran to Rome where he could hide in the large city. No one could find him. And as Paul learned about Onesimus, and actually Paul preached the gospel to Onesimus. Onesimus became a believer, embraced Christ, and began to tell Paul about his life, about his from Colossae and how he used to serve this man named Philemon and how he'd run away. And, fall, and Paul is thinking, oh, you know what? I know this guy, Philemon. In fact, Paul had led Philemon to the Lord as well. And so Paul knew Onesimus in prison. He knew Philemon far away in Colossae and knew that there was tension between them. And the tension between these two is is probably bigger than a brother offended because it's not really two equal parties. It's a subordinate um, transgressing a superior. And in the days of Paul... 
for that slave to go back, a runaway slave could easily be killed for the crimes he committed in the days of Paul. Philemon, as a slave owner, would have many reasons to treat Onesimus very harshly. If nothing else, to be an example to the other slaves, lest they learn to run away as well. So Paul tries his hand at making peace between these two brothers and the Lord. This book is really a, a great lesson on peacemaking. And I just ask you, do you want to be a peacemaker? Do you want to be a peacemaker? Jesus gave great blessing. He said those who possess this ability to be peacemakers should be called sons of God. Do you want to be a person that, that can take two warring parties and knit together them in harmony and love? Maybe there's some people in your life now where you think, you know what, I think these two people are quarreling. And maybe I'm Paul, and I know this person over here, and I know this person over here, and um, maybe God will use me to be the instrument to bring them together. I don't know. Maybe you are quarreling right now, and there's some principles here you need to learn. It really gives us much lesson to learn here. Last week, I preached all of Colossians. This week, I'm going to preach all of Philemon. With the Lord's Supper, I'm not sure if I'll be able to get through everything, but just I want to get the whole broad spectrum. We might come back in, in weeks to come, thinking about some lessons here of Philemon. Um, but we need to see the whole book here first. Jake read it for us. We've got it in our minds. Let me just give you the three lessons of peacemaking that come right here out of this text. First lesson is this, show your love. Show your love. I, I think that's the thrust of Paul in the first seven verses. These are our verses are literally packed with expressions of love that Paul has for Philemon. And I'm just going to kind of run through them quickly just to show you how much Paul is saying, Philemon, I love you and you are doing a great job. You are being blessed to the Lord. You're being used mightily and I am with you and I want you to continue to prosper and I want you to go. And Paul is saying, I'm on your side, Philemon. And as you make peace between people, it's very important that people Know that you're on their side. Know that you're not against them. It's not, hey, I'm on this side going against you. Paul is with Onesimus. He loves Onesimus. And he'll get back to how much on the side of Onesimus he is. But Philemon needs to know Paul is on his side as well, that he might act appropriately. First of all, verse 4, he says, I'm thankful to God. I'm thankful always to you. When, When Paul thinks of Philemon, the first thought that comes into mind is one of thanks to God for this precious saint. He was a loved man. As it says in verse 1, he is our beloved brother. This is who Philemon is. He's one who is loved. Philemon is a faithful man. This is what it says in verse 1 also. He is a fellow worker. He labored in the ministry. As a slave owner, he probably wasn't a pastor in the church, but he was a fellow member of the church, like all of you, laboring hard in the ministry. Philemon was a devoted servant, allowing the church to be used for Allowing his home to be used for the church. Look at here, verse 2. I'm greeting Aphi, our sister, Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church in your house. Philemon, perhaps, is a wealthy man. had a house big enough to have the church in it. But to have a church in it means lots of sacrifice and responsibility, preparing and cleaning and then dealing with the messes that take place. And when you put all these things together, it's no wonder that Paul was thankful for Philemon. I'm thankful to God for, for you, Philemon. He says also that he was praying for Philemon. Look at verse 4. It says, I'm praying for you. It's really an expression of love. It, it, it demonstrates much. It says that Philemon's name would drip 
from Paul's mouth before the throne of grace. It said that that Paul was praying for Philemon that God would be merciful and gracious and prosper them. You know, we had a, a great time in prayer meeting this morning. For those of you who are there, you know how good a time it was. We, we took we took the directory, and we just went through the directory and prayed for each family. We have about 30 families at church, and we prayed for half an hour, just one family after another. I said the family's name, and someone instantly just prayed for that family and just prayed for this family and prayed for this family. That's a little bit what Paul did. He is praying for Philemon, dripping from his lips to the throne of grace. Was Philemon's name often. So now if you're here today, you're on the directory, you were prayed for this morning. We know what, what's going on in some degrees, some know more, some knows less, but whoever loves you and cares for you prayed for you this morning. Well, verse 5, <clears throat> Paul says, I love your reputation, Philemon. You are a loved man. You have a reputation for being a man who loves, certainly loved the Lord Jesus Christ, but through his service to the church, he demonstrated himself to be a man who loved others. He'd go the extra mile. He'd take the shirt off his back and give it to others. He'd speak the word of encouragement. He had a genuine interest in others. And here's the thing is when people watch the life of Philemon, he's one who loves It's not Philemon who says, yes, I love people. No, it's he who wanted love. Because others, Paul said, I hear of your love and your faith towards the Lord Jesus Christ. I hear it. People are talking about your love, and I'm thankful for that. I'm rejoicing in that. Verse 5 also says that he was a reputation of man of faith. It says right there, I hear of your faith. It means he was a Christian. He was a saint. He was one who loved God. He was a fellow worker. But, you know, there's something bigger here than just being a man of faith. He had a reputation for being a man of faith. People watched his life and they saw him. They saw the things he said, the things he did, the ways in which he behaved. And it was clear that as people watched the life of Philemon, they said, he's a man who believes. It's a reputation, kind of the gossip around town, the chatter around town was how he was a righteous man who trusted the Lord. And in verse 6, It continues on. He says, I pray. Here's what I'm praying for you. You say, okay, well, Paul's praying for Philemon. What's he praying? He's praying actually for great things for Philemon. He says, I pray that the fellowship of your faith may become effective through the knowledge of every good thing which is in you for Christ's sake. He says, I desire great things for you. I want your faith to to grow. I want it to be shared by many. I want your knowledge to grow. I want you to experience great blessing in your ministry to Christ. He says, I want you spiritually to prosper in every way. That's what Paul was saying. A desire for great things for him. Paul wanted Philemon's faith to carry on its work in all of its fullness. You know, and similar types of things come here in verse 7. I have come to have much joy and comfort in your love. Philemon was a man of love. And even being a man of love had an effect upon Paul. He said, I have great comfort and I have great joy. He was joyful because Paul was able to witness the work in the man's soul. And others are going to benefit, right? His love was the means of helping the saints. His love was the means of encouraging those in the church. His love provided a place for the church to meet. And in doing this, Paul could do nothing but rejoice. It brought great comfort to his soul knowing the Lord had planted Philemon and Colossae to serve and minister the people to help and encourage and edify those in Colossae. Paul had a great concern for those in Colossae. 
And, and as he knew that Philemon was there laboring and helping and serving and loving, it like brought comfort to Paul because he was concerned about those people. You know, the testimony of, of Dan Bashaw has been really good. Uh, for those of you who don't know the story, is uh, Dan and June a part of our church? And Dan just went off to officer training school in Alabama. And um, he's been off training, and June is here, and she's been pregnant. And um, he came back for Christmas break. And I remember his testimony he shared to Gordy. He said, you know, it'd be really hard to be apart, especially my wife is pregnant up here. Um, and I'm far away. I can't be involved. But he said the, the comfort, the church that's around her, that loves her, gives me great comfort. And by the way, she had a baby. I think all of you know that. She had a baby. Dan was be able to be there by speakerphone, and God was so good, and, and June was so happy that was taking place. Yvonne, I'm going to see her this afternoon in the hospital. Um, but that's how it is. Dan could comfort in knowing the church was around them, and so also Paul could comfort in knowing that Philemon was around the church to help them because of his care and concern for the church. And at the end of verse 7, we see another way, right? The hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you, brother. So God's using you, Philemon. People come to you depressed and downcast of soul. And when you speak for the, to them and, and care for them and show their interest in them by asking them questions, they begin to have hope. They begin to see that such momentary light afflictions are, are really nothing, but they're producing an eternal weight of glory. And you're encouraging them and you're comforting them and you are refreshing them. God's using you, Philemon, and I'm so happy that he is and that you are being faithful to the call. Now you take all those things together and you say, what's Paul communicating? The main point is this. Paul is communicating that he loves Philemon. He loves the fruit of what God has done in his life, putting forth all of these good qualities. There's a church in his home. He's working hard for the Lord. His faith is being known far and wide. His love for others is unquestioned. He's helping souls through the ministry. And Paul's, Paul's building him up. And that's what, you know, that's what you do with people you love. People you love, you will speak highly of how God is working in them to encourage them, to build them up. And so Paul's doing. He's showing his love for Philemon. So if you want to be a peacemaker and make peace with people, it's a good strategy to build them up first. Build them up. And once they're convinced of your love, then and only then can you deal with the difficulties. Because if you just deal with the difficulties head on first without demonstrating love, it's not nearly going to be received so well. And I'm not talking about false flattery. I'm not talking about deceitful, you know, Dale Carnegie winning friends and influencing people by saying false. I'm talking about genuine love and affection expressed in what you say. Love them by encouraging them. It's your way to prepare their heart for the hard lesson that comes, right? the confrontation. So you want to be a peacemaker? First, show your love. Second, show your wisdom. Show your wisdom comes in verses 8 through 16. In verse 8, Paul finally gets to the issue at hand. He says, therefore, right? It's a, it's a turning point in his letter. Philemon, I've shown you your love for you. I've told you everything you're doing. I'm, I'm in it for you. I, I think you're doing a wonderful job. I, you know, God is using you. He's blessing you. But here, you know what? I, I, need, I need to deal with an issue. Therefore. <laughs> and then he takes two verses before he deals with the issue. If that is, that's gentleness. He's showing his wisdom and being gentle. He doesn't get to the issue until verse 10. He spends two verses softening the blow. He says, therefore, and, and Philemon, okay, here the blow is coming. And he softens the blow. 
by taking some time, by speaking softly, by being patient with his words. Galatians 6.1, Brethren, even if anyone is caught in a trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. A peacemaker needs to be patient with his words. I can just give you testimony. I've not talked to Yvonne about this, but after 15 years of marriage, almost 15, I can sense when I'm in trouble. Yvonne starts to talk to me and carefully and slowly and uses more words than she might because she's being very gentle with me. And it's just the, the wisdom that comes out. It's not the words spitting out in anger towards me. It's words coming out slowly and gently. I'm not sure if you've known that. <laughs> I see it when it's coming a mile away. She's being really gentle right now with me. And I'm in trouble. But that is wisdom in dealing with seeking to make peace. And that's what Paul is doing here. He's being gentle. Therefore, and he really then um, speaks more wisdom here. Therefore, he says, Though I have enough confidence in Christ in order to order you to do what's proper, yet for love's sake I rather appeal to you. He says, listen, I have authority, but I'm choosing wisdom. Paul was the apostle of Jesus Christ, sent from God himself. He had a face-to-face encounter with the risen Lord. As a writer of Scripture, he spoke for God. Certainly could have told Philemon, Philemon, I see the situation of conflict between you and uh, Onesimus, and I know full well that he's a runaway slave and deserving of punishment, if not death. And I know that by letting him go free, listen, you're going to incur some difficulties, maybe with other slaves that see how lenient you are. They, perhaps they will run away and hoping for forgiveness as well. But I'm telling you what you have to do. You have to accept him and you have to forgive him of his transgressions. And listen to me, obey me, because I'm the apostle. And Paul would have been totally within his right to do that. But he didn't. He said, I appeal to you, Philemon. It wasn't a command. It was a request. It says it in verse 10, I appeal to you. But notice it's not for any lack of power or lack of authority. It's, it's not even a hesitation on Paul's part or, or doubt whether that would be a, an acceptable thing to do. Rather, Paul said, I choose the path of love. Verse 9, for love's sake I do this. I think love's sake is kind of tying the first point, show your love, but it's also showing his wisdom. Because that's the path that must be taken. Because rather than being compelled by an external force, Paul wants Philemon to be compelled internally and willingly. That's what verse 14 will get to. I want your goodness not to be in effect by compulsion, but under your own free will. He wants Philemon to be put in this situation where he say, you know, of my own accord, I forgave Onesimus. I wasn't forced to forgive him. Paul didn't strong arm, strong arm me. I forgave him because I wanted to forgive him. And that's the wise path of the peacemaker. Peace comes when two parties come together willingly. You know, if two parties come together by force, it's not called peace. Do you know what it's called? It's called truce. And there's a big difference between peace and truce. When you have peace, border patrol and border guards aren't heavily armed. You can travel between countries. Open trade is there. No heavy buildup. But if you have truce, you've got a heavy buildup of troops here with their guns pointed this way. You've got heavy buildup with their guns pointed this way, but they're not firing. Because there's a truce. They're not hurting each other now. They're quasi at peace. 
But they're not. They're at truce. And there's a big difference between truce and peace. And when there's truce among the brethren, there might be peace on the outside, but there's no openness on the inside. There's no trust. There's no willingness. Paul wasn't seeking truce. He was seeking peace. He could have obtained truce by authority. This is what you got to do. But rather, he wanted peace through willing coming together. That's wisdom. It's wisdom. That's why he chose to appeal rather than command. In appealing, he was seeking the genuine peace that should exist among the brethren. Because see, when peace comes, unity comes. And when unity comes, happiness comes. Scripture we read in our prayer meeting this morning was Psalm 133. Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in unity. It's a great thing. It's a happy thing. It's like the oil coming down upon the beard, Aaron's beard. It's like when the law was consecrated, when the priests were consecrated. Now we have our access to God in the Old Testament. It's like the dew of Hermon coming down upon the mountains of Zion. I mean, that's the, the refreshing, nourishing water that's coming in the desert. And God commanded the blessing, life forever when brothers dwell in unity. And he wanted that. Paul was a peacemaker. At the end of verse 9, Paul is appealing to who he is. He says, okay, listen, I'm appealing to you. Not as the mighty strong apostle, but I'm appealing to you based upon his own reputation. And it's interesting how he appeals. He appeals in his weakness. He says, I'm an old man in prison, is what he says. I'm an old man without strength of my youth. I'm in prison without any ability myself to get outside these walls. And I'm appealing to you out of my weakness, not out of my strength. Please regard this request of an old man in prison. My dying request, do this. I mean, deathbed wishes are often accomplished to the max. And Paul's not on his deathbed, but the principle's the same. He's weak and feeble as nothing else. He just makes this simple request. And in so doing, he's choosing the path of of wisdom. By the time we get down to verse 10, we finally see the object of the conversation. Onesimus come out. It's the first time Onesimus' name is named here. Verse 10, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whom I have begotten in my imprisonment. Paul's wisdom continues to flow. If you run through these verses, verse 10 and following, you see that that, um, Paul just continues to show forth Wisdom in his appeal for reconciliation. He thinks about Onesimus now. He says, verse 10, Onesimus is a repentant man. I've begotten him in my imprisonment. Begotten, that means he was born in his imprisonment. Not born spiritually, not born physically, but born spiritually. Like Nicodemus, right? In order to get to heaven, he must be born again. He was born spiritually. He was renewed. He was a new man. Turned from his life of sin to a life of, uh, of God Trusting in Christ is a spiritual birth, a change in life, a supernatural work of the Spirit of God upon his soul. In fact, if you read here a little bit, it's because of this that the letter is written. Because Paul is begotten, Onesimus has been begotten by Paul, he saw his old manner of life, he saw his sins, he saw running away from his master, was sorry about it, he knew it was wrong, he wanted to make it right. And so wanted to make it right by going back, but was fearful of going back without a a peacemaker to help make the peace. Otherwise, Onesimus may have been a dead man. But it was because he was regenerated and new and changed that this whole circumstance came about. And then the wisdom continues. Okay, let's listen. Let's think about Onesimus. He was formerly useless to you, verse 11, but now he is useful both to you and to me. 
Now, you can't see this in the English text. In the Greek, there's a play on words here. Onesimus comes from the Greek word onesis, which means prophet. So here is one whose name was profitable. He once wasn't profitable as a slave, but now he is profitable as a believer. Once he wasn't useful, now he is useful now that you've got him back again. It's wise to bring him back because he's useful to you now. He is Onesimus. He is profitable now. In verse 12, Paul appeals in wisdom to his own affection for Onesimus. When you have him making peace, Philemon needs to see that, yes, Paul loves Philemon, but Paul also loves Onesimus as well. And look at these words that he uses. He said, I've sent him back to you in person, and that is sending my heart. It's as if when Onesimus went back to Philemon, it's as if his very heart was being ripped away from him. Like many women have faced in this war in Iraq, when their husbands are ripped away from them and off fighting in the war. Where are their thoughts and their hearts and their prayers? It's where their heart is, right? Jesus said, where your heart is, there will your treasure be. And I say, where your heart is, there's where your prayers are going to be. That's what they're seeking to do. So also with Paul, his love had left him and gone back to Colossae to make things right. And if nothing else, for Paul's sake, maybe Philemon could forgive him and, and bring his heart back, is what he's saying. In verse 13, he continues, I, I wish to keep Paul, I wish to keep Onesimus with me so that on your behalf we might minister to me in my imprisonment for the gospel. Not only was Onesimus useful to Philemon, he was useful to Paul. In fact, Paul wanted to keep him around, but it wasn't the wise thing to keep him around. It's the wise thing to send him back and then receive him back. That's the wise thing to do. Wisdom does the right thing. In this case, the right thing would have been for Nisimus to go back to Philemon and see relationship restored. Start regardless of how much it hurt Paul. Maybe he'd get him back. But he trusts Philemon to get him back. The thought continues in verse 14 with a little twist. He says, without your consent... I'm sorry, 14 doesn't have the twist. The twist comes later. He says, but without your consent, I did not want to do anything so that your goodness would not be in effect by compulsion, but of your own free will. I've alluded to this already, but Paul said, I, I desire your willing support with Onesimus. He's a changed man. He's embraced Christ. He's turned from his sin. He has a great deal of desire to do what's right in reconciling to you. He's useful for kingdom work, but I don't want to force the issue. I don't want to pressure you in this issue. I want for you to come to your own conclusions in this matter. I hope you do agree, but I'm not going to do so without your agreement in these matters. In this case, I'm just telling you, wisdom is abundant. It's far better to convince somebody to see the issues for themselves rather than to doing what your convictions think is right. And you say, you just trust me on this, okay? It's far better to bring others along. Because when you pull your rank and say, you trust me on this, it's going to bring just tension and discord and resistance. But when there's agreement, peace and harmony and support comes. And Paul didn't want to force the issues. He wanted Philemon to come on board. In verses 15 and 16, he, he really continues on with more and more reasons, the whole situation. He says, in the sovereign purpose of God, it may actually turn out better. Perhaps for this reason, he was separated from you for a while that you would have him back forever. No longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me. But how much more to you, both in the flesh and to the Lord? No doubt it was a sinful thing for Onesimus to run away, but it may have been the very thing that would bring ultimate great blessing to Philemon. 
As now as he comes back, he comes back a changed man for the better. He's the new and improved and long-lasting Onesimus. He's new in the sense that he's born again, a believer in Christ, a beloved brother. He is improved in the sense that he's more than a slave. He's long-lasting in the sense that he comes back forever to be with you. It's like Onesimus went out from Philemon to be an, an old, rusty, antique car. But he goes into the shop of restoration. He gets totally restored, you know, engine rebuilt, you know, the side panels scrubbed clean and freshly painted. And he comes out a brand spanking new, completely refurbished sports car that's going to last another 40 years. That was who Onesimus was. The Lord had done great things in life. He'd be a great blessing to Philemon when it came to becoming a faithful slave. He wasn't going to serve with just external service anymore. He was going to serve not as man pleasers do, but he's going to be one who did the work hardly as for the Lord rather than for men. And this way, it's going to turn out better than before. Paul's showing his wisdom. So do you want to be a peacemaker? Show your love and show your wisdom. Now, if you're playing the role of a peacemaker, your reasons for reconciling the relationships can be a lot different than Paul. I mean, you're not going to deal, I don't think, with runaway slaves going back. If so, you could just kind of write the letter of Philemon. Your situation is going to be different, so you need to really think through, really pray through. Okay, now why should they be reconciled? What are the wisdom issues that I'm going to put together here? How can I manage the situation appropriately? And your role as a peacemaker is to demonstrate wisdom in the situation. Bring scripture into the equation. Bring logic into the discussion. Make known your affections and your desires for both parties. Don't exert your authority and be gentle in all things. Because you need that in order to win the strong city of a brother offended. Well, let's go to my last point this morning. Show your love, show your wisdom. Finally, show your commitment. You know, when seeking to reconcile two parties together, it's not... It's not enough just to stand on the outside and say, okay, you, get along with you, and there you go, and have a good day. Now, you've got to get in. You've got to get your hands dirty. You've got to get messy in this whole thing. That's what Paul's saying in verses 17 and following. The, the, the big thrust of it is that Paul wasn't a cold third-party bystander. He was willing to get in and do whatever it took to get this reconciliation thing done. He puts himself right in the middle of it, even putting himself at risk. Look at verse 17. He says, If then you regard me as a partner, accept him as you would me. He says, Philemon, listen, I'm a partner with you. I'm committed to you. But I'm committed to Onesimus as well. I'm so committed to Onesimus that, that, that he and I are like one. And when he goes like I go, and you treat him like you would me. Putting himself right in the equation. Identifying himself. So treat him like you would me. He's fully engaging himself. In the situation, that is commitment. In verse 18, he steps to a financial commitment. It says, if he has wronged you in any way or owes you anything, charge it to my account. Paul was willing to pay the financial loss that Philemon experienced. If Onesimus stole anything, Paul said, I'll repay it. If Onesimus caused a stall in the business for some reason, because, you know, an employee just took up and left. Paul said, I'll make up your lost profit. If he was a difficult slave to replace and there's lots of training costs associated with this, Paul said, I'll pay the training costs. 
If in the process of things Philemon was slandered by others, he would, he would take the slander himself and say, it was my fault that Onesimus ran away. He would take the blame himself, charge it to my account. If Philemon incurred any legal fees or searching for him or putting up wanted posters places or have you seen this man or whatever, Paul said, I'll take it. I want to remove all financial barriers in this way of reconciliation. It might be to be a peacemaker between two people. Say they're arguing about $300. (laughs) Take out a checkbook and write $300 and give it to them. What's better, $300 or a reconciled relationship? It's a financial squabble. Deal with it however you can to your abilities. Paul said, I'd pay anything. And here comes a twist in verse 19. He again repeats it. He says, I'm writing this with my own hand. I will repay it. Not to mention that you owe me even your own self as well. Paul says he's willing to pay. He's writing his signature with pen and ink. Hey, listen, this is my signature. of Guarantee I'll repay it. But the twist is he says, you know what, Fain Lehman, though, let's just think about this. You owe me your life. And, um, you know, you've, you've not finished that debt yet. So I'm not willing to repay it, but you need to realize what you owe me is a lot, everything. But in that, Paul just kind of slides that in there to remind him. He continues on to show how involved he was. He was emotionally involved, emotionally committed. Yes, brother, let me benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart. Paul's heart was over this whole thing. He was hoping to be encouraged by spirit. In spirit, as they were reconciled together. And Paul was going to be affected by how this thing turned out. I mean, if the reconciliation didn't happen, how's Paul going to respond? (laughs) He wouldn't be refreshed. He wouldn't be benefited. He would be sorrow and downcast and he would be worried. He would have anxiety. It would be difficult. Because, see, there's this connection in our hearts. We see the Lord work in the lives of other people. John said, I have no greater joy than this to hear of my children walking in the truth. And as Onesimus and Philemon would have been reconciled together. It would have given great, Paul great joy and comfort and happiness and benefit. His soul would have been refreshed. And in verse 21, he further shows his commitment by showing his confidence. Paul believed in Philemon. Having confidence in your obedience, I write to you since I know that you will do even more than what I say. He didn't think even for one moment it's going to be futile. He was confident in Philemon's response. Believing in Philemon. And by leaving in Onesimus that they could work this thing through. In fact, he's so confident that he says at the same time, verse 22, prepare for me a place, a lodging, for I hope that your prayers, through your prayers, I may be given to you. He said he wants to be among them. He loves both of them and they're both going. He wants to be with Philemon and Onesimus. He wants to show his commitment to be part of them, enjoying the blessings of unity. That's what he wants. And he shows his commitment even by willing to bring other people into it. At the beginning of the epistle, this isn't just a personal letter. It is a personal letter, yes. But Timothy knows about this letter, verse 1. Aphia knows about this letter, verse 2. Archippus shows about this letter in verse 2. And at the end, Epaphras knows about this letter. Mark does, and Aristarchus does, and Demas and Luke, his fellow workers, know about this letter. He's engaging other people as well. He said, not only am I committed to it, but I'm committing to get others involved to see this thing happen. These people were ready and willing to serve as witnesses to the process. And I'm certain that they were praying as well. I mean, just think about the example of a 
of Epaphras. Remember in Colossians 4, verses 12 and 13, how he always labored earnestly for you in his prayers that you may stand perfect and fully assured in all the will of God because he has a deep concern for you. I think one of the things on the mind of Epaphras when this letter went, Onesimus went with Tychicus to deliver the letter, we've been praying, oh God, I pray for Philemon. I pray he'd have a soft heart to be able to receive this brother back again. Well, you want to be a peacemaker? Show your love, show your wisdom, show your commitment. Sounds easy, huh? Oh, it's hard. It is, it is very hard. In fact, to me, the, the task has seemed very insurmountable at times. Uh, when I've had conflict among people, particularly in this church, and I've been in the role of a peacemaker, I've lost sleep about it. I've lost weight about it as my stomach gnarls and churns. Solomon's illustration of trying to win a strong city is, is very appropriate. Listen, they are difficult. And I would even say this. It's more difficult to reconcile two parties than it is being one of the parties trying to reconcile. And you think about it. When, uh, when you're in a conflict, you can do your part to solve it. You can confess sin, which I have done on many occasions to people in the church. You can apologize. You can express your love with your words. You can serve other people. You can do, as Paul says, as far as it depends upon you, be at peace with all men. So you control half the equation. But when you're seeking to be a peacemaker, how much of the equation do you, do you control? It's like zero. And it is hard because two parties both need to be willing to see reconciliation. I'll close with two biblical examples. You remember David and Saul? David had um, opportunities to kill Saul and become king, but he never did so because he was faithful to the Lord's anointed. There was one time when David's running from Saul. Saul's trying to kill him, okay? <laughs> Is that conflict between people? He's trying to kill him. And so Saul and his, his, David and his guys are hiding away in caves and which cave does Saul enter into? Of all the caves, he enters into the very one where David is. And you remember what David did? He said in 1 Samuel 24, verse 6, his friends are saying, kill him. Kill him is your chance. He's going against you. Get him. Get him. But David was willing to reconcile. He said, far be it. See, he said, far be it from me to stretch out my hand against him. He's the Lord's anointed. Saul left. David stands at the edge of the cave and says, uh, you know, I cut this little thing off your garment. You were here and I had you in my grasp. But I want to reconcile, Saul. I don't want to kill you. Saul said, whoa, he does. He left. You know, it happened a little bit later. Another 3,000 men again out marching, trying to go after David. You need two parties to reconcile. The other party is not willing. It's not going to happen. That's why it's so hard to be a peacemaker. You might have one willing party and another one not willing. It's just not going to happen. Well, the second biblical illustration I'll close with is the prodigal son. The prodigal son, as many ways, is like Onesimus. Demanded father's inheritance, took off, squandered everything. Right, Wronged his father, shamed his family, everything like that. Wasted tremendous financial resources, yet he came to his senses in a foreign land, returned willing to be reconciled, just like Onesimus, willing to be reconciled. When he came back to his father, a repentant man, his father could have rejected him like Saul. He could have said, my son, you have dishonored me. 
You have squandered my hard-earned wealth. You have lived sinfully. You have no right to be my son. Is that what the father did when the son came back? Kids, is that what the father did? Mm -mm, Of course not. What happened? The father was willing to forgive. Forgiving all the wrongs that he had done. There was reconciliation. There was peace and there was unity and there was happiness and there was blessing. And here's the good news. The story of the prodigal son isn't a story about two people who are estranged from each other, seeking peace with each other. The story of the prodigal son is a story of God's willingness to reconcile with straying people. Even if the transgressions are great, like squandering all your wealth and living sinfully for years, being interested only in yourself, God says, I'm willing to reconcile. I'm like the prodigal father, the prodigal son's dad. And should you repent for your sins and return to God, you'll find him willing to reconcile through the blood of his son, Jesus Christ, who's the ultimate peacemaker. Romans 5.1 says this, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. How is it we have peace? Everything we talked about. Right? The, the cross of Christ. Right? Jesus being reconciled. Uh, us being reconciled to God because Jesus bore wrath. As the song says, we're going to sing at the close of our service. The wrath of God completely satisfied in Jesus. Jesus, thank you. Once an enemy, now seated at your table because God embraced us and took us in. Because he's willing to. And I just even call you today and just say, are you one who's stubborn and rebellious? Maybe you're at um, conflict with other people. Are you confessing your sin to them? Are you open to them? Are you willing to reconcile? Are you still speak angrily with them? Are you harsh with them? God calls us to, to be reconciled to people. He also calls us to be peacemakers, showing our love, showing our wisdom, and showing our commitment to others. That's the lesson of Philemon, I believe. That's what was taking place there, and that's a lesson for us. May we, may we hear strongly again the, the blessing of Jesus pronounced. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they should be called sons of God. Let's pray. And Lord, I would pray at Rock Valley Bible Church that you would cause us to be peacemakers. Lord, teach us to show our love towards other people. Teach us to speak highly to write notes, to send emails, to speak words of encouragement, to show our love. Teach us to act with wisdom between warring parties, to know how it is that we we should act and how it is that we should encourage others to act. God, may we be committed to that cause and uh, help us in these things. And I know firsthand, God, how how it's hard. And it's, it's really hard. And but by the grace of Christ, it's impossible. And so I pray that you would help us in these things, work among us. Um, God, cause us to be a place that's, that's living in, in peace and harmony and unity for the glory of Christ. In whose name we pray, amen. Then uh, grab the insert that's in your bulletin. We're going to sing.